Hello and welcome to Marvel Moments, the show where we take a thematic look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. My name's Matt, I'm your host, and today our theme is... Women of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as you can tell, I'm joined by a guest today, and that guest is Esther Dudell. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. Welcome. And so Esther is the author of Hot Pants and Spandex Suits, Gender Representation in American Superhero Comic Books. So she's ideally placed to talk about representation of women in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And she'll tell us a little bit more about her book later on. But for now, I've got an icebreaker question. Esther, what are your favourite movies in the MCU? Uh, that's a that's a tricky question. So I think I'll answer it in terms of like rewatching. Uh, so the ones that I rewatch uh, the most because I because I just enjoy sitting back and watching them is probably Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther. Um, they're two of my of like the most rewatchable ones, emotionally satisfying storylines that I like to put on in the background or have another watch of again. Both excellent films. I think for myself, Captain America: Winter Soldier. And Spider-Man No Way Home would be my favourites. I'm also a fan of Infinity War, but there's just something very nice and self-contained about Winter Soldier. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. It's it's a very satisfying, like, again, like a very satisfying emotional arc and a very good plot um, to the film. It doesn't feel like it's being set up. Um, like, it's not a story that is used just to set up something else. It's an interesting story and it prickles you because you know there's going to be more at the end of it so yeah i really like it so today our theme is women of the marvel cinematic universe this is going to be an episode for women's history month in march we're going to look at iron man 2 the scene at 23 minutes into the film and uh, just to say there will be spoilers for both these movies and pretty much everything except hawkeye because i know esther you're still looking forward to watching that at some point so let's take a Marvel moment. Basically, at this point in Iron Man 2, unbeknownst to Tony and the audience, S.H.I.E.L.D. has inf- infiltrated Tony's company through the presence of Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow. She is masquerading as Natalie Rushman. And this scene where Tony and Happy are sparring in a boxing ring and Pepper is trying to get Tony to do some business is the scene where he meets Natalie, a.k.a. Natasha Lesson one, never take your eye off. What's your name, lady? Rushman, Natalie Rushman. Front and center, come into the church. No, you're seriously not gonna If it pleases the court, which it does. It's no problem. I'm sorry, he's very eccentric. Can you uh, give her a lesson? No problem. Who is she? 
she is from legal and she is potentially a very expensive sexual harassment lawsuit if you keep ogling her like that yes and i've got three excellent potential candidates they're lined up and ready to meet you i don't have time to meet i i need someone now i feel like it's her when i when i saw this film for the very first time when i was in my early 20s i think um i really liked that scene. I thought that was like, oh, it's a really fun way to introduce a new female character. You know, immediately she's game to play along. That's really cool. And now as an adult, I, as an adult in my 30s, I look back on that scene and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what that scene is meant to make you feel. But actually, that's massively inappropriate to do to your new employee. Like, that's actually not okay. Um, and very much like Natalie uh, or Natasha as Natalie does take that moment to win Tony's trust by cooperating and playing along and being the cool girl who's into it. So it's funny how like the first time I saw it when I was quite a bit younger, I was like immediately fooled into thinking that like, yeah, this is fun. This is cool. And now as an adult, I'm like, if my boss did that to me, I quit on the spot. I'd be like, nah, I'm not getting in the ring. What's that? Because essentially he decides on meeting this new young legal assistant to draw her into a boxing ring and get her sparring with his bodyguard and friend Happy. Probably one of the key moments of Tony Stark as kind of lecherous playboy. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like he does it so he can watch because it's titillating and fun for him. And it's like, it's it, yeah, as a new employee... And also, I think like Natasha's age is a bit dubious in this um, in this scene as well. I'm just a bit like, that's no, I'd be super uncomfortable. And as well as like the second she gets in the ring, you have like Happy's really condescending attitude of like, oh, you've done some, you know, you've gone, you've done some booty kickboxing or whatever. And it's it's like as a woman now, I'm like rolling my eyes because like. Happy is also consistently framed as like the bumbling, well-intentioned good friend. So we let the casual misogyny slide because it's like, oh, he doesn't realize what he's saying, doesn't realize that it's bad. Um, and I'm like, if I was like, yeah, if I was in that situation, I'd just be like, that's not appropriate. These comments are not appropriate. The fact that I'm in this ring is not appropriate. Like that's an HR nightmare waiting to happen. Really is, really is. And Pepper is actually her, her main role in the scene is she is pointing out that that's exactly what it is. It's a very expensive legal suit waiting to happen, as she says. There's very much the sense of Pepper being the adult in the room, just trying to rein in these men with their overactive libidos and their misogyny. I mean, I'm, I was laughing as you describing Happy because, I mean, Happy is just the worst in many ways. He's <laughs> condescending, patronising, uh, and not not just to uh, Natasha, but to just about 50% of the people that he meets, I think. You ever boxed before? I have, yes. Or like Thai bow, booty boot camp, crunch, something like that? He definitely takes his cue from Tony and thinks that because Tony talks down to people like that, he can do it too. Yeah, there's a blurring of the lines there, isn't there, between Tony um, as employer and Tony as friend and wingman. Definitely, definitely. And it's very much just this, it's it's a running joke on Tony's end that he can't make friends unless he's paying them. So, like, he does that with a lot of his employees where he, like, when he likes them, like, he will cross that line and be very friendly and chatty with them. And it's like, Happy does 
well, it, it's hard to say that he takes advantage of it because he's clearly encouraged to do so by Tommy. But yeah, he then does also turn around and like makes inappropriate comments to women to kind of uh, go away from from the boxing scene, like in Iron Man 3 when he becomes head of security and he like openly harasses people. And it's like a running joke that HR complaints have gone up and like, that's actually not okay though. Like it's hard enough to go to work every day and then you have to deal with this guy. So you complain to HR and you know that the CEO is making jokes about it because she's good mates with his head of security. So nothing's going to come from that. I was like, that's not, that's not okay. Badge. Badge, guys. I put a memo in the toilet. Come on. Tony has got... Uh-huh. So you're suggesting that I replace the entire janitorial staff with robots. What I'm saying is that the human element of human resources is our biggest point of vulnerability. We should start phasing it out immediately. What? Excuse me, Bambi. Hello. Did you just say that? Security? Happy. Okay, yes. I am thrilled that you are now the head of security. Okay, it is the perfect position for you. Thank you. However, I do appreciate it. Since you've taken the post, you don't have to thank we've me. had a rise in staff complaints of 300%. Thank you. It's not a compliment. It's not a com- it is a compliment. Clearly, somebody's trying to hide something. Yeah, and it's like Stark Industries is perhaps just a model for poor HR, poor employer-employee relations because, you know, as much as Tony's a very lovable character, there is just a lack of professional responsibility there. He will make decisions on a whim. I mean, like, even when he's trying to be responsible, like in Iron Man 1, and he says, right, we're no longer in the weapons business, Okay, but what about your entire company and workforce that is predicated on government weapons contracts? Yeah, like, what about your factories? Like, are you just going to sack everyone and retool them and then start rehiring? Like, what's going to be the process here? And of course, it's, it's, it's Pepper, the competent, strong woman who then has to come in and sort it all out and make it easy for him. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's definitely one of these things where... Um, Pepper does stand up for herself. And like you said in, in the boxing scene, she's the adult trying to rein in the, the children. But at the same time, she's also a massive enabler of Tony and Tony's poor behavior, behavior towards other women. She'll stand up for herself and like maybe for, for Natalie a little bit because Natalie's like under her protection because she's Natalie's direct supervisor, direct boss. But actually, Pepper's like, really condones Tony's poor behavior towards other women. And you really see this with um, Christine Everhart character. Yeah, so the bar scene. Yeah, the bar scene. So Hammer introduces Christine and makes a judgment, a, a, a really poor comment about throwing her a bone. So immediately undermining Christine's professional acumen or whatever. And then Pepper goes, oh yeah, she did quite a spread on Tony last year. And it's like, it's actually not appropriate for you to make comments about Christine and Tony's sensual, uh, sexual encounter and be derogatory about that. That's actually not cool. Um, like that's, that's some slut shaming and throwing Christine under the bus as well, because I'm sure not everyone knows about that. And then Tony picks up on that as well and runs with it. So she like, so Pepper almost invites this kind of sexual mockery of Christine. And I'm like, that's actually not okay. You know, Christine Everhart from Vanity Fair? She's actually doing a big spread on me for Vanity oh, Fair. I thought I I'd throw her a bone, you know. Right. right. Yes. Well, she did quite a spread on Tony last year. And she wrote a story as well. Yeah, because the way it reads to me is Pepper, it's subtext that's only meant to be picked upon by Christine, given that kind of 
there's no reason Justin Hammer would know about their relationship on any other level on the professional. But Tony, being an absolute jerk about it, kind of makes the subtext actual text and points it out. There is that sense of Pepper making her uncomfortable. Yeah. But giving Tony the ball that he runs with to really kind of shame and embarrass her. And it's also like, I don't believe that Pepper didn't know that he would run with it because she knows him. She understands him. She knows yeah. that he's kind of a kind of a, a jerk about it. So, yeah, it's kind of and in. And, 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 yeah. So it's, it's like it's through Pepper who condones his behavior that we, the audience, are primed to condone his behavior because Pepper's the good woman. Right. She's ambitious. She's smart. She's classy. Yeah. So we see her as a, a woman worthy of admiration and respect. So we follow her lead as she judges the other female characters in the film. And in the boxing scene as well, that comes back because at the end of it, Tony goes, when, when Natalie's walked out, Tony goes, I want one. And instead of going, that's not an appropriate comment to make, because again, Natasha's not a thing or an accessory. And like, it's not appropriate to talk about employees like that. She just goes, no. And I'm like, so you are kind of standing up for Natalie because you're not immediately going, oh, well, she can be your assistant then. But at the same time, it's like you're not addressing like the root cause of the problem. You're kind of playfully indulging that banter by just going, no. Yeah. And and this is really, a, these are all running threads from the first movie into the second movie because what you said about um, the way in which Pepper passes judgment on Christine is like right there in the first moment where they meet in Tony's mansion. It's framed there as antagonism between the two women, that they are immediately rivals when they meet. You must be the famous Pepper Potts. Indeed I am. After all these years, Tony still has you picking up the dry cleaning. I do anything and everything that Mr. Sark requires, including occasionally taking out the trash. Will that be all? And it's just, it's unnecessarily adversarial, because it's like, it's perfectly fine for a woman to have a one night stand with a man. So Pepper doesn't need to judge Christine for that. It's not like Christine's lost something by giving in to Tony or whatever, or being charmed by Tony. At the same time, it's like Christine doesn't need to start out that defensive and adversarial. Although I do think it's not a cool move on Tony's part to run away and then send Pepper to kick her out of the house. Like that's not a respectful way to have a one night stand. And again, Pepper indulges that behavior by doing what her boss tells her to. And we know that Pepper wouldn't be afraid of saying, I'm not doing that, if there was something truly unpleasant that she didn't want to do at all. So it's like that kind of indulging that kind of behavior, um, you know, seeing it. Oh, it's just, you know, he's, he's just a playboy. It's just a bit immature. It's just he's still in his wild child phase and kind of ushers Christine out the door. With a, with a snarky, judgmental comment. And I'm not saying that she doesn't, like, comment to Tony about it. And she clearly, like, doesn't approve of the behaviour, but at the same time, she does kind of condone and enable it. Yeah, and I wonder there if it's perhaps a thing of she is uncomfortable with his behaviour, um, doesn't approve of it, she's uncomfortable with the culture, but feels like she has perhaps a better vantage point to challenge and change it if she keeps her foot in the door rather than leaving. And not that that by any means makes anything right in terms of what Tony does, in terms of how it must be to work at Stark International. 
but I think that's perhaps the experience of living in a world where there are constant microaggressions, systemic sexism, you know, you have to pick your battlefields. That's so true. And to be fair, yeah, at this point, like Pepper is still Tony's, primarily Tony's assistant. There's clearly a vibe of will they, won't they, but that doesn't come in until a little bit later. And it's very much the case like, yeah, that is her job. And it is very normal for women in the workplace to kind of, as you say, pick their battles. And I'm just thinking, as talk, you're talking about the development of the will they, won't they. Actually, when Tony starts to make a move on Pepper, she very directly calls him out on the inappropriacy of it. The way he very publicly chooses to dance with her at um, the gala event. That's true. Yeah, she does. When they go out on the roof, she does try to point out that people know his reputation. They know she works for him. And by because he's paying that kind of attention to her, which I'm assuming then he hasn't done in public before, um, he's kind of he's endangering her reputation. Um, in the same way that Christine Everhart's reputation kind of is damaged through her encounter with Tony, um, and then that's kind of later on enabled by Pepper. But yeah, no, that's a fair point. She does kind of stand up to him in that moment. But then there's also the implication that if he'd come back with his drinks, that something would have happened between them. Because he leaves to go and get her a drink because she asks for one. And then Christine ambushes him um, with the latest atrocity committed by Stark Industry Tech. And he doesn't go back. Um, So it's that whole bit that something, even though she calls him out on it, the fact that it's inappropriate, the movie also very heavily implies that if he had managed to go back, something would have happened between them. Because Tony even references it at the end of the film. They had a moment together. Yeah, if I were Iron Man, I'd have this girlfriend who knew my true identity. She'd be a wreck. She'd always be worrying that I was going to die. Yet so proud of the man I'd become. She'd be wildly conflicted, which would only make her more <clears throat> crazy about me. Tell me you never think about that night. What night? You know. Are you talking about... The night that we danced and went up on the roof and and then you went downstairs to get me a drink and you left me there by myself. Is that the night you're talking about? Mm-hmm. That's so. So it's, it's that whole thing. Yeah, and that clearly develops in the second movie and into the Avengers and you've got to think, this whole thing is p- playing out in public as well, even up to the point of them breaking up, getting back together, the engagement. Very off-handed way that Tony and Happy turn the failed press conference in Spider-Man Homecoming around. So it's like, how can we spin this? Are you kidding me? I have a room full of people and they're waiting for some big announcement. What am I going to tell them? Think of something. How about, um... Pat, you still got that ring? Do I? I uh, the engagement. Are you kidding? I've been carrying this since 2008. Okay. I think I can think of something better than that. Well, it would buy us a little time. Like, we need time. I can't believe you have that thing in your pocket. You get the door for you, bunch? 
And also, I'm I'm kind of interested. I kind of wish we could have seen the backlash because there's a little bit of it when Pepper is made CEO in Iron Man Two. Um, there is kind of a backlash. I think at, at some moment, Pepper's like on the phone to someone, and there's a TV program playing with, with a news announcer saying that like you need to sell stock, stock, stock industry stock, because yeah, because like he's just appointed Pepper a Pepper Potts. She was his secretary. What are her qualifications? And I'm like, one, yes, that is a relevant question because Pepper has definitely benefited from nepotism, and we as the audience know her qualifications because she's actually been running the company as Tony for years um but at the same time it's like yeah but if a dude was to be appointed that way no one would question it that would be a bold new choice a bold new direction um so it's kind of interesting how like the fact that she is CEO and then he is chairman of the board I'm assuming still um who still has a massive influence in the company are a romantic item um, but then I'm willing to bet that like Tony is the kind of celebrity that people love to hate on, um, but also really, but also really love at the same time. Yeah. So there is this kind of double standard, and Pepper is just trying to navigate that line the whole time between having kind of self-respect and looking out for her employees, looking out for other women especially, but also just trying to make it in what is decidedly still a a patriarchal, male-dominated world and industry. And I think Natasha, kind of going back to the scene, is very much there in basically a cynical play on Tony's reputation, on all these kind of cultural norms and ideas. And this is how she has been used as a weapon since her adolescence. This is what uh, the Red Room used her for. This is what S.H.I.E.L.D. continues to use her for. And so that you said before that she's the cool girl. She kind of acts as if she's in on the joke. And we haven't mentioned yet, she decidedly puts Happy down in a very painful and dramatic way, which is very satisfying. Rule number one, never take your eye off your opponent. Oh my God! <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Just slip. You did? Yeah. Looks like a TKO to me. I, I feel like that is meant to be read as like her breaking character accidentally, like her reflexes take over. She didn't quite mean to do that. But the satisfying end result is that happy is but in his place. And certainly I think the movies, and not just um, Iron Man 2, but Avengers Assemble also, very much indicates that one of Natasha's preferred tactics is to use other people's assumptions and sexism against them. And that's how she gets them to cooperate. So uh, the opening scene in Avengers Assemble, where she, or her introductory scene in Avengers Assemble, where she's questioning the Russian general, um, like the, the tactic she uses against Loki. So she clearly reads the fact that um, Loki would assume that she's in love with Barton. Uh, to, and that's why she's come to Barton for his life. And he takes like very sharp jabs at her because he assumes that she's like emotionally frail. Um, hence the reference to Mewling Quim. Because she's a woman, she must be emotionally frail. And she uses that against him to get at what he's playing at. She gets him to reveal things um, because she gets him to, uh, to, to, to monologue and, and underestimate her. I won't touch Barton, not until I make him kill you, slowly. 
intimately in every way he knows you fear. And then he'll wake just long enough to see his good work. And when he screams, I'll split his skull. This is my bargain, you mewling quim. You're a monster. <laughs> oh no. You brought the monster. So, Banner. That's your play. What? Loki means to unleash the Hulk. Keep Banner in the lab. I'm on my way. Send Thor as well. Thank you for your cooperation. And I think that's kind of what we see in the boxing scene as well. Like, like you said, she, she has to get close to Tony. That's her role. So she kind of uses the fact that Tony has... Uh, a toxic work environment or that Tony like inadvertently fosters that uh, she uses that against him um, because he, he finds those modeling photos for her like she modeled in Tokyo and it's like yeah she definitely planted those so because basically she's like she's just pulling all that up as a smoke screen she's like don't look at me too closely because I don't want you to see me for what I am I want you to see this instead so yeah so like the getting into the boxing ring, being game, being attractive, and and having that modeling pass in Tokyo. That's all like this very titillating stuff that Tony is distracted by because he's like an immature man-child at this point a little bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and he very much gets that from his dad as well. I was watching Captain America, First Avenger the other day, and Howard's, the first thing we meet him in, he's doing his version of the expo similar to what Tony did in Iron Man 2, and he's showing us the flying car, which is really cool. It's a really way to show a slice of 40s life and futurism. But his first thing he does is kiss the showgirl, the imp- who's essentially an employee, who's helping show off the, yeah. the flying car. Not cool, my dude, not cool. And Howard, through the movie you can, and the Agent Carter TV show, you can see that he is constantly this character to the point where he is much, much older than Tony before he ever settles down, which is why he, as somebody who was in his 20s in the 40s, has a child who is in their 40s in the 2000s because he just played around. And we, we have no idea what his relationship with Maria, his, his wife, was like. Because uh, she only has a tiny bit role in uh, Civil War. And that's very much a parallel with Tony, because Tony has Morgan very late in life as well. Um, and he dies not as young as his dad, but he dies um, before Morgan's an adult as well. Um, so there's that, kind of, there's that kind of parallel between Tony and Howard, where Tony achieved a whole heap of things more than Howard did, for sure. But their lives run very, very parallel um, in, in, in that That's way. That's fascinating. I hadn't considered that before because there's very much this love-hate relationship between Tony and Howard. He craves his father's approval, which is all the harder because he's not there to actually give it. And that's why he kind of idealises his mother because in uh, Captain America Civil War, uh, he goes, he, kill- he killed my mom. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not so much about Howard as it is about Maria, and it's that whole bit where it's interesting because Tony's probably close to the age Maria was when Maria died because she was so much younger than Howard. So that's an interesting like thing. But then also, you know, he definitely idealizes her more than he does Howard because there wasn't that antagonistic relationship. But I think like 
I think it's Endgame where they kind of resolve things um, amicably between them. But it's then the question of like, were they, did they have such an antagonistic relationship because they were just too much alike? And would that have developed similarly if Tony had had a son instead of a daughter? Or is it that Tony is better placed to be a parent because he had that resolution with his father? I mean, it's interesting because like in the comics, 100% Howard's, Howard's just a bad parent. Like 100% Howard's like an abusive parent in the comics. Um, but yeah, in the films, there's, there's much more this question of Howard tried his best. He just wasn't very good at parenting and he didn't take the time to learn how to be a good parent because he was busy with the company and etc etc yeah no they're all fascinating questions and obviously in the films where and the shows Howard's a lot more likable because he's played by two very charismatic actors who who are pretty adorable in the roles uh, Dominic Cooper and Howard uh, Trevor Slattery is it yeah the guy from Mad Men Uh, (laughs) The guy, guy from Mad Men, yeah, that's the one I was going for. Yeah. Um, I'm fairly certain I just said the name of um, the fake Mandarin character from Iron Man 3. Oh, yeah, you did! Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll look it up afterwards and find out what the Mad Men actor's name is. I, I, I'm fairly certain it sounds similar, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. um, but, yeah, um, so there are these fascinating parallels and we've discussed with, with uh, other guests about how Tony replicates some of the relationship with Howard, with his relationship with his his protégés, with Peter, and to a lesser extent, the young man in Iron Man 3. But he also, he also has a brilliant relationship with Morgan. You can see that he's a much more engaged um, and compassionate and understanding, empathetic father than Howard from the start. And I just wonder what kind of person Morgan's going to grow up to be with that example from her dad and with a great role model in Pepper. And what kind of person Pepper actually wants to be as a role model for Morgan, given the shortcomings we've discussed. I think, I think I really do hope we see more of Morgan in the MCU and that they kind of give her a place because it would feel a little, you know, we're going to use a female child as a vehicle and then just ditch her after she's done humanizing the the, the male father. Because I think that is something like, and I do think Endgame kind of falls into that um, trap where female children are used to allow male characters, their fathers, to display softness and affection and therefore to humanize them a little. Um, so you see that in Ant-Man with Cassie as well. Well, that does a few other things as well, because like Ant-Man is, I think Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp are very different compared to their other films in their respective phases. Um, but, you know, you have it in Old Man Logan as well uh, with Wolverine and um, X, uh, X-22. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's like a very common trope outside of superheroes as well, um, where female characters are used to kind of bring out the softer emotions because, God forbid, men are kind and, and gentle and affectionate with each other. Yeah. There is that, how do we resolve the problem of our men have to be rock hard and kind of super competent and unyielding and show no emotion and yet also make them likable, empathetic. So... You have your John McClane's who have um, their hollies and their kids um, carry around big teddy bears. 
throw a daughter in there. That'll sort it out. There. Tell me the story. The story. Uh, once upon a time, Maguna went to bed at the end. That is a horrible story. Come on, that's your favorite story. Love you tons. I love you 3,000. Go to bed, or I'll sell all your toys. Night-night. So yeah, it would it would be great if Morgan comes into it. And I feel like there is there's there's great opportunity now that they have the expanded world of the TV shows and you've got Armor Wars and things to bring back kind of Iron Man adjacent characters. So I, I very much think that the Young Avengers are going to be a thing because they're clearly being set up for it. You've got Kate, who's been introduced in the series that I haven't seen yet. But you've got WandaVision, which introduced uh, Billy and Tommy. Um, so I'm kind of like, I don't know how Morgan would fit into that. But if they're going to do like a group of superheroes who are young, I think Morgan would be best placed to join that, maybe. Um, that would that would certainly be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think one of the strengths of the MCU is as well as brilliant superheroes, you also get the supporting characters, the non-superhero ones who are still just as essential characters like uh, Darcy, um, characters like Jimmy Woo, yeah. um, Pep- Pepper even. And so it'd be nice to see young people who are not superheroes. So you might see a return of Harley Keener from Iron Man 3, yeah. get Morgan, um, as well as characters like Riri Williams who are going to take the superhero role. I think I think that would be really good because I think like if, like I'm gonna bring up Atman and the Wasp again. Or go for Ant-Man. it. Go for it. Atman has a very nice set of diverse female characters, and you've got some, you know, familiar tropes. But I think they are done very well, very respectfully. And it's like there's quite a few female characters in the background, so you don't have the trap of the other films where there's a single woman because she's the love interest, um, and and women don't really exist outside <laughs> of that single woman. Uh, Batman and the Wasp is so different and it's like I think actually superhero films are very enriched by having supportive casts who don't follow the superhero line because it gives a lot of opportunity for conflict but also support in the sense that like you know superhero stories are essentially about exceptionalism you know the the main hero who is exceptional and so I think it's always very nice when they have a solid supporting cast who are like just regular people who are very good at the things that they do and just kind of help out. Ant-Man and the Wasp is even better because they also have like at least three characters that are like fundamental to the story, aren't just in the background. You've got Hope, you've got Janet and Ava. Yeah. And so like, so you've got Ava as the, it's very hard to call Ava a straight out villain. Like she does some really horrible things, but it's very, very clearly comes from a place of abuse. There's loads of male characters that we excuse horrendous behavior for because of that. So like Loki is very clearly at the top of that list. So for me, it's like Ava is a very sympathetic villain. She suffered horribly. She's still suffering horribly. And she's just trying to make her pain end. So I think it's like very credible that she's in a lot of pain and she just wants to get out of it. And because of that pain, she kind of has stopped, has lost the ability. She doesn't have the bandwidth to care about the consequences of her actions for other people because she's been in that pain for so long. And that's not a position that we afford to women. 
very often because we do expect our female women in our lives and female characters to kind of very much um, prioritize other people. Um, and I think it's just interesting that we have a villain who's so sympathetic um, and who is a, who does kind of prioritize herself. It does make her a villain, but she's still sympathetic. And that's a very like unusual thing for, for a female character. And obviously you have Janet, who's kind of like, oh, I don't know. She's kind of, oh, she's like, like a, she's almost herself a deus ex machina because she kind of shows up and like magically has been changed by the universe she's been trapped in and saves Ava through that. Um, and again, very rare to see such a powerful character um, who had a long and happy marriage with her husband, like the mythical long and happy marriage that can't exist in superhero narratives because the woman always has to die. And then Hope, um, who is like extremely competent and the whole... Some of the superhero, some of the films that we've we've mentioned already have fallen into kind of oh the the everyman hero who's a bumbling idiot, but who's still somehow more heroic than his female companion who's actually smart and competent. So Ant Man kind of teeters on the edge of that trope because Scott is an everyman superhero. He's got very good specific skill set, um, but Hope is very much portrayed as more competent. More, more competent, more no nonsense. Um, and yet their partnership really works and is a partnership because he's got that creative thinking that isn't Hope's strong suit. Yeah, he's more flexible. It will take what he's picked up and kind of play with it, whereas she's more disciplined. Yeah, I agree. She takes a very systematic approach, whether it's kind of beating his ass <laughs> or, <laughs> or taking down uh, Darren Cross. Yeah, and it's like, because Ant-Man, the first one, um, very much kind of frames Hope as the very natural successor to Hank Pym. Like, she should have the suit. And he, Hank Pym doesn't want her to because of what happened to her mum, and he wants to to, to protect um, her um, and, and, and things like that. But then in Ant-Man and the Wasp, he's obviously let go of that because they've lost Scott to Civil War. Um, but then it's also like she isn't Ant-Man, she's the Wasp because she's her mother's successor. And I think that's like really cool that Janet is painted as like a really heroic figure who died and comes back, which again, like is something also very rare for female characters to do. In superhero comic books, all the heroes die and come back to life, but female characters don't. But then Janet gets to do that. And in Hope is her successor. She takes over the Wasp. I just think that's like a really cool thing that we don't get to see very often where a, a daughter takes over her mother's mantle. And that is a very, there's a, there's a big shoes to fill. That's a very heroic role um, that Janet yeah. had. Uh, Janet is just fantastic. Uh, the first thing we know about her is that she, without hesitation, sacrificed herself to prevent a missile strike. She just did what needed to be done. And then first thing we see her in... Ant-Man and the Wasp was flashback with young Hope, just having fun with her child, uh, being so goofy and funny that where she pretends to fall asleep mid-conversation and just jerks herself awake, in contrast to Hanku's old business. And then, like you say, she kind of takes on these powers, but she's in control of them and she's confident and competent. They do not destroy her a la Dark Phoenix or I think when we were corresponding, you mentioned another example, maybe Wonder where the great power 
when it's found it situated in the hands of a woman can often result in you know 60s style fainting fits or 2000 style kind of mental breakdown that results in reality being rewritten janet seems to manage to do both she is a working woman who's incredibly competent and capable she is the perfect mother in many ways it seems you know we we don't get to see kind of the more nuanced side of that but she and she's also got the the hero the savior she she kind of gets to do it all partly that is obviously because the pimps are rich you know um and that really helps um but also like her partnership with hank is very clearly a partnership and hank isn't an absent father after his wife's death, which is a very common trope as well, that with the loss of the mother, um, the man loses his ability to be open and emotional. Hank isn't like that. Hope and Hank have a very, have clearly have a very close relationship that is based on mutual respect and love. And so like, it, it's very much that Hank's partnership with his wife enabled his wife to do all these various things because they were partners both in their marriage and the superheroes. And again, it's like, it's one of these things where um, Ant-Man and the Wasp is very good at showcasing like really healthy relationships between men and women, which I think is a really important part of like how to do feminism well in films that actually it's not just on making a good female character. It's also about the men in their lives. Because like, um, so obviously uh, Scott's ex-wife, um, he has a very positive, yeah, Maggie, they have a really positive, like, co-parenting relationship for Cassie. And then what I really liked is that Maggie's new husband is actually super cool with all of that. Because he's, he's a massive jerk in the original comics um, that he appears in. And he does not have a good relationship with Cassie. Um, he really kind of, like, tries to muscle in, call Scott useless and a criminal and stuff like that. And it's really bad. And they've kind of just gone, we're not doing that. He's going to be a nice guy who is super supportive of Scott and his relationship with Cassie. And I'm just like, and super respectful of like Maggie's relationship with Scott. And I just, I think that's really, really good. Yeah, they're like a, a triumvirate parenting triad with just a natural give and take and a flow. And it's like you say, so different from the comics because... I reread some of the early Young Avengers stuff. It was a spotlight issue with Cassie and her mom and her stepdad. And both parents and step-parents are awful. Cassie's mom actually hits her in public across the face. That's great. That, that is just awful. Uh, and I can see why they changed the names of the parents in the movie. Because that, that, that is just... Cause it's not even challenged as that being wrong. It's just presented as being, this is a troubled relationship, not kind of child abuse. Yeah, it's that whole, well, you know, Cassie's being rude and is challenging her mum a bit too much. And yeah, the mum doesn't know how to respond. That's kind of how it's framed. Like, it's like, no, no, that's not okay. You, you don't hate your child. Like, nah. Um... So yeah, I, I do love that the films have kind of completely deviated from that origin story. So I think the films really used that to kind of highlight how close Cassie is to her dad. So the comics use that adversarial relationship with her parent, with her parents, her mother and the stepdad um, to, to highlight how close Cassie is to her dad and kind of explain why, why she'd want to take up his mantle after his death, etc. But it's that's not... <laughs> you don't need that. That's I mean, not and, necessary. And the Wasp shows that, that 
from a place of a warm and loving nurturing relationship cassie just wants to help her dad yeah and she does she just she has a like i think you already insinuated it she had more of a supporting background role but she plays a very key moment of distracting woo long enough for scott to get back into the house and cover for being absent uh, and she's just so cut, funny and cute it's just like oh dad's bathed in the bathroom can you don't want to go there and that gives woo moment to pause it's like how bad is it yeah it's it's i absolutely love cassie because it's like so they they, they they've done they've done this so well where she has a really close relationship with her all her parents she's a really funny kid um she's got she's a bit weird because she likes the ugly doll he gives her and stuff like that so they kind of highlight that she's a bit of a weird one which is which is uh-huh. fine like father like um, daughter you know yeah and also i'm sorry but like the power of mysticism of little girls because little girls are supremely weird and i don't think uh like that's highlighted enough in anyone who not actually knows a little girl in their life will tell you little girls are staggeringly bizarre and it's amazing so i, I love the fact that they played into that but then also like the the film doesn't fall into the trap of um you know a parent being re- relying too heavily on their child or their child's advice like when scott is experiencing some conflict she does discuss it with cassie because she asks because she wants to be a part of his life which is a very normal thing for children but i do feel like he he explains it to her in, a, in an age-appropriate way and then again kind of explains that like yeah you'd be a great partner but i wouldn't be a good dad if i let you and i'm like he 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 is not just her friend he is her father he doesn't cross that line and doesn't rely on her to be his emotional support system because that wouldn't be appropriate that wouldn't be healthy for her and so i I love how the film like really involves her as a character without crossing that line um which i think is is so rare so yeah i really i really love the way they've done cassie i think that's really good so maybe you just need someone watching back, like a partner. Well, she's made it clear that's about the last thing she wants. Who? Hope. Wait, who did you think? Me. You? Don't laugh. I'd be a great partner. Oh, Peanut. Oh, you would be awesome. And if I let you, I would be a terrible dad. Fine. Have Hope be your partner. She's smart. She reminds me of you. You gonna go help her? I think you should help her. I wish I could, but... I don't know how I can help her without hurting you. You can do it. You can do anything. You are the world's greatest grandma. And this reminds me of another parent-child role that in a similar way kind of models this respect and responsibility in Peter and May. So I think in the comics, which I think is a reference point for a lot of the Spider-Man for the past 20 years, the ultimate comics, Peter has been a teenager and has been kind of very independent. Whereas in the recent films with Tom Holland, I think because he's being juxtaposed to the more grown-up adults of the MCU, kind of, he's entering into their stories, they've emphasised that child nature 
and that he's got a lot to learn, and yet he's still got this heroic and noble impulse. And and I think that means that the relationship he has between May and himself works really well because he's he's concerned for her. What if she finds out? It's not just trying to sneak around behind her back because he doesn't respect her. He, he's worried that it'd be a lot to place on her. But it seems like once she does find out, there is a, supp- a supportive role where she takes the lead in that. You, you know, she she supports him as Spider-Man, but kind of she doesn't... Ab- um, step away from her parental responsibilities, which must be really difficult uh, where you've got a teenager who can lift a car. Yeah. So it's a whole, she knows that she can't actually stop him from doing it. So she's, so she's got to put, she's got to try and mitigate his identity as Spider-Man, I guess, in different ways. And it's like a very fine line to, to tread. And also I think like it kind of does highlight the challenges of having a teenager where you're kind of constantly renegotiating boundaries because teenagers, you know, they they crave responsibility, they crave respect. Um, and so they do need more privacy. They need more um, responsibilities in managing their own lives. And so you kind of start stepping back as a, as, as a parent. Um, so she has to navigate that alongside him being Spider-Man. So she has to walk that very fine line. Um, I do think it's interesting how she keeps getting younger in every iteration of the of the of, of the films. Yeah, there's a hilarious meme where they actually show Alfred Molina, you know, Doc Ox actor, with every iteration of the actor who plays May, because um, he's pl- he's been in with each of them, so it's, it's quite funny. But yeah, I I think there is a lot of emphasis in that first moment where we meet um, May can t- Tony sat talking with her and he's doing the thing where he's clearly flirting with her and he's vibing on her and he says kind of I can't believe she's somebody's aunt and I think that's very much in character with him but it's also hanging a lampshade on what will be very evident to people so obviously Aunt May the younger she gets the more and especially in the later situation like she's sexually appealing to the audience i think that is that is a factor um because the mcu has very few older women proper older women um i'm not it doesn't have like old men either so not really odin's like the oldest frigga next to him looks super young although i love absolutely love frigga uh but yeah that, that, that's, that's beside the point so yeah so it's, it's it's hard to say that like oh they, they won't include older women because they don't really include older men either because again it's an action genre so it'd be bit more difficult to incorporate that but then you do have like every single Stanley cameo it's like an older dude so um so yeah there's like there's various layers to it and I, I do think that it is just that it's more marketable um to to have a young Aunt May who's a bit sexy and a bit flirty and also I think it's like they're making her younger because they're making him look younger it, technically Andrew Garfield and um your man the first one or Tobey Maguire um, and Tom Holland, they're all meant to play the same age thereabouts, but they're all, all but like, they're definitely like, like Andrew Garfield yeah, looks kind of mid twenties, yeah. late twenties. So they 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 keep getting younger. And I think it's a case because he's getting younger. She has to look a little younger as well, just because otherwise that would look too weird. Cause I think the fact that 
Peter was being raised by his elderly aunt and uncle. It was a huge part of his identity because he was so concerned about the burden, the financial burden he put on them because like they were still working, they weren't retiring, stuff like that. And that's kind of faded from the narrative as well as like Peter's very white working class background um, is also like being mitigated by the fact that he's now being basically sponsored by Tony. So I think this and that, I think, kind of all works together. So I think actually Aunt May in the comics has been de-aged in some ways. And is perhaps, I think in a, in a way, Aunt May starts off as being this very elderly, frail lady who's a middle-aged man's idea of what an elderly aunt is. <laughs> um, but in the last 20 years, she's become, she, she's still a, a senior citizen. She's still uh, retirement age, but she volunteers at Feast, which is something they carried into uh, to the MCU iteration. She dates and remarries uh, t- to J. Jonah Jameson's dad, J. Jonah Jameson oh, no. Senior. I've done not, I've not, not been there for that. It's brilliant. Oh, Both um, their sons, uh, Peter and J. Jonah Jameson Junior, are so uncomfortable with being stepbrothers of a kind. That's even worse than the time she married Doc Ock. <laughs> well, Jay Senior is actually a lovely man, oh. and it's really hard to see how he's Triple J's dad. It, it, I think it's because he was raised by his stepdad, yeah. um, who did fit some of the harder, abusive, died in the world kind of military stereotypes. But at his heart, James Jonas is a good person. He's a, he's a jerk, but he's a good person at heart. Because like in the first in the first film. And the goblin is like, who sends you the pictures of Spider-Man? He's like, don't know him. He sends us his stuff by post. It's like he's protecting Peter in that moment. His, his portrayal is really interesting. And I, I really like the character. But yeah, I think Aunt May, I, I do think she's a bit too young in the MCU. And I, and I do think that is just a kind of titillating, sexy thing. I do agree that like some of the other iterations are a bit more like what it's actually like to be a bit of a senior citizen nowadays, where we kind of look younger, you know, people dye their hair and stuff. And um, uh, people do date and volunteer. Life isn't over after. And I think, interestingly enough, that um, it's Into the Spider-Verse that has, like, one of the best portrayals of May. Because May, in that, is like, she is clearly a senior citizen, but she's clearly got stuff going on and she's clearly active and stuff. And I, I quite liked her portrayal in that film, which isn't MCU, I know, but Into the Spider-Verse is really good. Can you rewire a mainframe while being shot at? Can I what? Don't Surprise me. attack! Can you swing and flip with the grace of a trained dancer? Can you close off your feelings so you don't get crippled by the moral ambiguity of your violent actions? Can you help your aunt create an online dating profile so she can get out of the dang house once in a while? Can you float through the- Yeah, just sticking with May a second, across all her iterations, so, um... Our episode on mentoring uh, came out on Monday and one of the things we discussed is how May is perhaps Peter's best mentor and the most overlooked one because we expect her to be there providing care, uh, giving advice. But consistently, you know, she is the caregiver who stays around, who is loyal, consistent in her care, gives him sterling advice. And that's true of... Toby Maguire movies. That's true of the Andrew Garfield. I love the moment where she insists on saying, you know, you are my boy to Andrew Garfield's Peter. It gets me in the feels every time because he idolizes his dad 
And, you know, she has tried not to step on that, but his dad placed responsibility to his work over responsibility raising his son. And she cleaned his socks, she got him to school, and she looked after him even after losing her husband. Uh, and, you know, uh, and it's just beautiful, actually, you know, because he affirms that, yes, I'm your boy, you, you know, you're you're my aunt, you're, you're my... Uh, uh, and there's not even a word to really describe the aunt who's really my mum um, at this point. Yes. The truth is your parents left you here on our doorstep and you were this little boy whose whole world was turned upside down with no explanation. We did the best we could. Your Uncle Ben and, and I. I mean, who else was going to care for you and protect you and worry about you? Your father? No. I was the one who wiped your nose and made you brush your teeth and do your homework and washed your dirty underwear. Me, your stupid, non-scientific aunt who doesn't know how to make ends meet, who has to take nursing classes with 22-year-old kids so I can pay for you to go to college. And I don't know how to do this without Ben. I don't know how. And, and you're dreaming about your perfect father who was never here. No. No, I won't tell you. You're my boy. As far as I'm concerned, you're my boy. And I won't hurt you. I'm your boy. You're my everything. You're enough. You're more than nothing. We're going to take a break there, but join us in a few weeks when Esther and I discuss more of the unstoppable women of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starting with the warrior women of Asgard and the scientist supreme of Midgard. We'll also take a look at the themes of agency and empowerment through the lens of Agent Carter and Captain Marvel. But before we go, I'd like to thank Dr. Esther Dedal for being my guest today. Thanks also go to David Shaw for the creation of our epic theme tune, The Moment Has Come, to our sound editor, Dan Morell of Media for Ministry, and to Sophie, who very kindly proofread and corrected our transcript at short notice, and to the Marvel Moments Facebook group for all their support and encouragement. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please do hit like, subscribe, and or follow and all buttons of that nature. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us five stars and a review. It really helps other people to find the podcast. Marvel Moments is a human happening show. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our Marvel Moment, and on Instagram at Marvel Moments Podcast to be notified of upcoming episodes and to join in the conversation. See you next time.